0: God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. I want to share with you just a passage I've been sharing for, for a couple of weeks now. Um, on Hebrews chapter 10, let me just start with a few questions. Have you ever experienced um, wanting to go to a party, but you weren't invited? I think we all remember something like that from school, you know, where there was this, there was this party and everyone knew about it and everyone wanted to go, you wanted to go, but somehow you weren't invited to the party. Um, some of you were very bold and very brash, and your gate crashed it. I know you. <laughs> Others of us are more timid and, and more polite, and, and we didn't go great, crash it. Or, you know, say you've studied or something, and um, you have an assignment or a project to do, and you don't really know how to do it, and you have to go and ask for help from, from the lecturer. But you know the lecturer actually explained it in class, you just weren't listening, or you, you didn't attend that class. Um, and now you 've got to go and knock at the lecturer 's door but but you 're sort of hesitant you 're sort of hesitant to look, knock at his you 're sort of hesitant to knock at the at the lecturer 's door because you know you should have known this and and you should have paid attention in class and then you would have known this so you're sort of you, you're sort of hesitant to knock at the door or you know even you know at work you know you, you need help with a project or something. But, but you know the reason you need help is because you haven't sort of been quite totally pulling your, your weight. You know, now you've got to go knock on your boss's door because there's a deadline and you know you're not going to make it. So you've got to sort of, please boss help, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to make it, you know. Just that, that sense of hesitation before knocking. Have you ever felt that? And do you ever feel that with God? Hmm? do you ever feel that when you when you're approaching God when you're coming to god <laughs> I think quite a few of us do <laughs> because i mean it, it's one thing to 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 not quite pull your weight at work and sometimes we all do that we're human. it's, not, it's, it's, some, it's, it's one thing to to not quite pay attention in class you know when you're a student or something you know we all have a bad day where you're not quite paying attention. But the reality is our very best day on earth falls far short of God's standard. Our, your best day on earth falls so far short of God's standard that if you go based on your performance, you'll always have that hesitation of, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure I can knock at this door. I'm not sure I'll be received. In other words, when we feel that hesitation, metaphorically, when we're metaphorically knocking at God's door, when we feel that hesitation, it's a sign to us that we're coming on the wrong basis. Does that make sense? I just want to uh, look at Hebrews 10, because I think Hebrews 10... Deals with that so beautifully. We're going to read just again from from verse 14. He's up there on the screen. You can just follow with me. It says, "For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time or forever those who are being sanctified or being made holy." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying. This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And then verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. And um, last time I shared with you, and I put it up on the screen again there, just a quick sort of summary of the structure of... um, of that passage. It's actually a very simple structure, but once you see the structure, it becomes easy to see what the the passage is saying. It it has two since statements, which gives the basis upon which we can draw near, and then it has three let us statements. Since the following things are true, let us do the following three things. Since we have a perfect sacrifice, and since we have a perfect priest who makes that perfect self sacrifice. And I shared on this last time, you can go and download it or um, Daniel put it on on i podcast for us so you can yeah, you can go and download the podcast if you want to since we since those two things are true since we have a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest let us draw near to God with confidence let us draw near to the future with hope and let us draw near to each other with encouragement or with intent and you might say okay but, but the, the, the The title of your sermon said God's building. What on earth does that have to do with God's building? Very simple. When it comes to God's building, to God's church, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And obviously he uses us, but here's the the point. God cannot use us in building his church if we start by trying to build his church. God cannot use us to build his church if we start by trying to build his church. If we start by drawing near to the future with with hope and if we start by drawing near to one another to encourage one another, then God cannot use us to build. The place where we must start is to draw near to God. And until we draw near to God with confidence... Our drawing near to one another to encourage one another will mean very little. We've got to draw near to, to God with confidence, and then we've got to draw near to the future with hope, and then we've got to draw near to one another with encouragement for one another. But where do you find the hope with which you draw near to the future? Where do you find the encouragement with which you draw near to one another? There's only one place where you can find it, people. Only one place, and that's in the presence of God. In the presence of God. And in other words, God cannot build through us unless we first draw near to him. Spend time in his presence. Come to him. God's got to work in you before he can work through you. You've got to know God before you can make him known. Amen? Amen? Okay, so let's just look at, at Hebrews 10, verse 22. Just zoom in on that passage. and um, As I, I, I often say, when when I share, I like to share not only a message, but also a method. In other words, I want to share in such a way that you can see what I'm doing, so that you can see how I get what I've gotten from the text, and so that you can do it for yourself at home as well. All of you are competitive. Comparatively, compared to the rest of the world, super intelligent and super educated. All of you. No, I mean, really. I mean, if, if you look at the standard in, in the world, all, all of you are, are very highly educated. You can read, you can write, you, can, you, can, you, can, you have probably a Bible that you can read for yourself. You can interpret scripture, and, and, and we should interpret scripture. Not only for ourselves but for our families and for the people around us. All of us are ministers of God's word. All of us are witnesses for Jesus. And my job as a pastor is just to equip you guys to be able to do that, to be able to do your ministry. Remember what Ephesians 4 says, verse 11? The fivefold ministry apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, there's a five ministry, guys, the apostles and pastors and whoever, aren't give, given primarily to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a minister. I'm being equipped to minister. Okay, so here we go. In uh, Hebrews ten verse twenty-two, it says, um, "Just put it up there on the screen." It says, "Let us draw near." And, and just by the way, when you're doing your Bible study, you know this is a very simple way to help you do your Bible study. Just, you know, take it on your computer, or wherever, cut and paste it into a word document, and then you just indent the text of scripture so that you can see the logical flow, so that you can see what is modifying what, what is subordinate to what. Okay? So very simple. Once you do that. It's easy to see what's going on. He says, let us draw near. And then he has three statements about that. First is, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The Second one is, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And the third one is, and our bodies washed with pure water. So he first tells us what we must do. We, let us draw near. That is what we must do. And then he tells us how we must do it. The manner in which we must we must draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So it's not just drawing near passively, uh, sort of lackluster way, sort of, you know, I've got to do this, this is my duty, you know, fine, you know, I'm going to do my daily devotions, I'm going to draw near to God, I'm going to spend some time reading his word and praying and so on, Uh, you know. doing it as a, as a, you know, like that, just as a, as a dead duty. Because you feel you have to. That's, that's not relationship. That's dead religion. And that's not what God has called us to. I mean, uh, <laughs> he, he, those, you know, imagine, you know, if, if Jan George, uh, you know, does that with his wife. Okay, fine. Let's spend time together. <laughs> I am your husband after all. I did say for better or worse. I did say till death do us part. Fine, let's spend time. You think she's going to be blessed with that? I think not. So, you know, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then it, it gives two reasons why we can draw near in that way. Firstly, because our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. And secondly, because our bodies have been washed with pure water. Okay, so let's just look at the first one. Let us draw near. What, uh, what must we do? We must draw near. Now, um, in the NIV and so on, it, it explicitly says, let us draw near to God, but the, to God is not actually there in the text. So the first question you're going to ask, if you just read the text in a, in a translation like the ESV that I had, is, says, let us draw near with the true art And it said, draw near to, to whom or draw near to what? And in context, it's very clear. The NIV is right in that sense. Uh, It's very clear that it's drawing near to God. And this has been, if you read the book of of Hebrews, you'll see that this is a pattern that gets repeated over and over again. In fact, let me just read you two two passages where it basically says the same thing. The first one is in, in Hebrews 4, verse 16, a scripture I think most of us know quite well. It says, and let us... With confidence draw near. There's that very same word. Let us, with, let us draw near. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when, it's, when it says let us draw near, it's drawing near to God and drawing near to his throne of grace. And then in, in chapter 7 verse 25 it says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near, there's that same word, draw near, who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So so over and over, Hebrews is just giving the reason why we can draw near to God, why we can have confidence. And like I said last time, it's in in light of, of the fact that um, as the book of Hebrews even says, you know, in the tabernacle you had the outer court, you had the inner court, and then you had the holy of holies. And and, and only the priest may come into the inner court to do their, their priestly duties. And only the high priest, and only once a year, could the high priest go into the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And only with blood to atone for his sin and for the sin of the people. And now. Here, yeah, the writer of the Hebrews is writing primarily to, to Jewish Christians. And he's saying, listen, something surprising, something shocking, something spectacular has happened. The veil of the Holy of Holies that prevented everyone, anyone except the high priest once a year from going in, has been torn when the body of Jesus was torn for us on the cross. And now we can enter in and draw near to God. Boldly, audaciously, with with like reckless audacity, where where, where the Jews under the Old Covenant didn't dare to enter in. We can just boldly come in. And that's precious, that's special. Let us, and notice it says, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. I think this is something I, I, I want to repeat over and over again because I think it's something where our culture has severely handicapped us. Our culture has become radically individualistic. And we think, I mean, if you just think about the law, individual human rights trumps everything else. It doesn't matter what's good or bad for the community. If someone has an individual human right, that trumps every other law and every other right in our legal system. Isn't that so? Our culture is radically individualistic, our Western culture. And it handicaps us when we come to God. Because here God is saying, through the inspired writer of Hebrews, let us draw near. And we know that individuals, we can draw near to God. And we should draw near to God. There's a place where as individuals in our private as Jesus says, when you pray, go into your closet, you know, close the door and pray to your Father who sees in, in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So there's a place where you shut the door and you, and, you, and, you, and you pray alone. But even then, interestingly enough, Jesus says, when you do that, when you're alone in your closet and you've closed the door, what do you pray? Our Father, not my Father, our Father in heaven. Let your name be praised. Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Even when you're alone, you don't come with that radical individualistic mindset that the West has imposed on us and that has infiltrated our thinking. We come like Jesus when he prays. Do You know, Jesus doesn't pray my father, he prays our father. Because every prayer he prays is intercession for us. And we must come in the same way Jesus came and say, Our Father, give us this day our daily bread, etc. And Jesus, we saw Jesus often withdrawing by himself and praying, and, and that's right and good. But what he's saying is, the writer is saying, Let us draw near to God. In other words, there's a drawing near to God that you cannot do by yourself, there's a drawing near to God that you cannot do when you're alone. And there are so many people. You know, in, in this world who say, you know, um, I, I'm into spirituality. I'm a spiritual person, but I have no use for organized religion. Have you ever heard that? I hear that all the time. And, 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 and it, it's part of sort of the, the spirit of the age, the, the mindset of the age. And I understand it to some extent. Because, really, I do understand it. Because let's be honest. Organized religion has messed up badly in the past. I mean, you just look throughout, throughout history. I mean, in the early church, times of the early church, it was the Roman religion and, and the Roman pagan religions that was persecuting the church and slaughtering Christians by the hundreds and thousands. By the Middle Ages, it was the Roman Catholic church that was doing the Inquisition and all that kind of stuff and killing Christians. I mean, I can't remember what the numbers were, but, but many millions of, of Christians were burned at the stake for confessing faith in Jesus. I mean you did you had the reformation and, and you had wars that came out of that. I mean you in the middle east I mean just wars all the time. I mean look at look at what's what's happening with with um, I always say to people you know if you if you if you take the list the top 10 terrorist organizations in the world You know, you go from them, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, you know, you name it, Al-Qaeda. What do they all have in common? They're all Muslim. They're all Islamic. And they're all serious about their religion. So, So you can understand that people in the world look at that and say, hang on, you know. This, you know, something must be wrong here. Then, then obviously, you know the the world is tempted to go to the other extreme of secularism, which, ironically, is worse. Do you know who the two greatest mass murderers of all time are? Hitler is like a small fry. He only killed about six million Jews. That's nothing compared to these guys I'm talking about. Stalin, Stalin killed about forty million. In the gulags and all that, 40 million people. Mao Zedong, the Chinese emperor, emperor of China, of Red China, killed, by even conservative estimates, more than 100 million people. You know what those two guys have in common? They hate religion, <laughs> they're completely atheistic, secular. They, they, in fact, they had a, a view of a utopian secular society. So when people say, "Oh, you know, religion is dangerous, you know, that's why I'm an atheist, then I say to them, hang on, just, you know, you've got to be honest and, and have integrity here and be intellectually honest enough to, to then admit, if religion is dangerous according to what you say, then your atheistic, atheistic religion is the most dangerous because more people were killed by those two people, those two atheists, than anyone else in the previous century, put together. All the wars together didn't kill (laughs) more people than those two atheistic leaders who had a view of a secular atheistic society. Why did I say that? (laughs) Um, Let us draw near. Let us draw near. In other words, there's a drawing near to God that you cannot do when you're alone. And if you have this idea, this, okay, religion is bad. I'm going to avoid religion. I'm going to draw near to God, but I'm going to do it all by myself. You will be able to draw near to God to some extent. But I can guarantee you there's a, a degree of drawing near to God. that according to Hebrews 10, you will not be able to do by yourself until you come to the church. Let us corporately, together, drawn near. And then it's uh, interesting, the, the Greek word that I put it up, pros, um, archometha, you don't have to know the word, but it's a, what I, what I would just want to share a bit of grammar with you, it's, um, you, you really don't have to know the word. There's not going to be a quiz afterwards, you know, you're not going to write a test. But, in, um, when, when you when you get, um, in, 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 in Greek, you have, you have two systems. You have the indicative system, which is just statements, saying sentences or asking questions. That's indicative. Everything else, giving a command, um, saying something is a possibility, um, you know, or saying something like to draw near, which is an infinitive, or you know, stuff like that, the different forms of verbs. They only have three tenses. In the indicative, you have lots more tenses. But in the the others, you only have three tenses. And none of them have time. Here's the point. None of those tenses in the non-indicative system have time. They only have aspect. Now, any verb has time and aspect. The time is past, present, or future. The aspect is completed, continuous, or undefined. So this is a a uh, non-indicative verb. It's, It's a subjunctive. So... It's a present. So the present in the non-indicative system is always continuous. So it's just a verb, draw near. But because its tense is present, we know that actually you should translate it, continuously draw near. Let us continuously draw near to God. In other words, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, I remember people, when, when, when uh, Nelson Mandela was still alive, people would love going to visit Nelson Mandela. When celebrities came to South Africa, they'd make an appointment and try and get a, a visit with Nelson Mandela. I remember Whitney Houston was weeping when she met Nelson Mandela. She was weeping and saying, Oh, you're my hero, and I love you, and I'm so glad I could... Even... <clears throat> what's that uh, guy with did the break dancing? Michael Jackson. <laughs> Even he went to visit... Um, I even went to visit Madiba, you know, and and they used they use their celebrity power to get a uh, a visit, you know, an appointment with Madiba, you know, and take a picture with him. I remember uh, Michael Jackson said, uh, um, "See you later, alligator," and and apparently Madiba said, "In a while, crocodile," <laughs> <laughs> when they when they greeted each other. Now, you get an appointment with Madiba, and he's this you know big statesman, this. F- world-famous leader. And you come into his presence and you have your little 10 minutes with him, chit-chat and so on, and then he says, okay, you, if you want, you can take a photo and you take a f- selfie, you know, with Madiba. And then you leave and you don't see him again. You get one visit. Like, oh, you know, I was so special. And you think about it, you know, and you, you look at this, you put the selfie on Facebook and you say, I was there with Madiba or I visited the queen or whatever other celebrity it may be. And God says, no, 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 no. And listen, this is God speaking. God who is a lot greater than Madiba, a lot greater than the queen, and a lot greater than any other human celebrity who has ever lived. Like a lot greater. He doesn't just say, yes, you can come into my presence, you can come draw near, you can visit me and you can take a selfie. And you can talk about it on Facebook for the rest of your life. That's not what he says. He says, continually draw near to me. Again and again and again. This is not a once-off visit that he's inviting us to. This is an invitation to perpetually, constantly, continuously draw near to him. Every day. Isn't that amazing? And if you think how much greater God is than Madiba or the Queen or whoever. That is special people. That is so special. Let us continuously draw near, and, like I said, unless we continuously draw near, God cannot continuously use us to build. because it 's in His presence that we do that. so what must we do? We must continuously draw near. How must we do it with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and what is this this true heart? Um, I'm, I want to try and keep it short, so I'm not going to read that, that passage in Isaiah 38, verse 3. But you can, it's, a, it's a phrase, a true heart is a phrase that appears constantly or, or quite a few times in the Old Testament. It just means with a sincere heart, with a, with a heart of sincerity, with, 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 with passion, with devotion, real devotion, drawing near to God. Um, and a true heart, uh, you know, by, by this, is, it's a true heart in full assurance of faith. So a true heart is a heart full of faith. That is a true heart. A true heart is a heart that, that has faith in God, that believes in God, that believes if I come to him, he'll actually receive me. I, I always, in my mind, I always go back to that, that picture of, I think it's in Anna and the King. Some of you might know the story. Anna was this British lady who went to Thailand and then she was a, a tutor or a governess for, for, for the, uh, the Thai king's children and he had lots of children yeah lots of wives and lots of children so she was like the governess and teaching them you know english and all kinds of stuff and there's this one scene where there is this massive throne room that has these like almost like terraces of levels you know and and there were these ministers talking to the king but they like you know through few levels levels down like three or four levels down away from the king there's this and he's sitting on the throne you know like elevated you know quite elevated and they like a few levels down and these are his like top ministers you know and he's talking to them and this little Four-year-old girl comes running in, you know, all the way up, you know, in the palace. And the the ministers are like like looking at me. She runs past them all the way up to the the throne, jumps on her daddy's lap, and everything stops. (laughs) The whole meeting (laughs) where they're making decisions that influence the entire country of Thailand, it all stops right there. And the little girl sits on her daddy's lap, the king's lap, and she has a conversation with him. And that is the kind of radical audacity that God wants us to have, to come into his presence. The, the, the full assurance of faith, knowing my dad loves me, I can just run into his presence. I don't have to be afraid of, you know, interrupting him. I can just go. In, in Hebrews 3, verse, verse 12, it, it, it gives us warning and says, Beware that there be not amongst you anyone with an evil heart of unbelief. So here he's talking about a true heart in full assurance of faith. The opposite of that, according to Hebrews in Hebrews 3 verse 12, is an evil heart of unbelief. That's a little surprising and a little shocking when you think about it. That God and the writers of scripture consider unbelief to be evil. Well, the Bible makes it clear that God has given sufficient evidence for himself in creation and in us as human beings, in our consciences. We're hardwired with the knowledge of God. God has a perfect track record. And if, despite his perfect track record, we still refuse to have faith in him and trust him, then it's not because there's something wrong with God. It's because there's something wrong with us. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Isn't that so? So, it's the opposite of an evil heart of unbelief. Uh, Like Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, For without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near, there's that same verb again, let us draw near to God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Whoever wants to draw near to God must come with a true heart in full assurance of faith, believing that God actually exists and that if I draw near to Him, He will reward me. With what? With His presence. He'll actually draw me into His presence and I'll experience that presence of God that I'm seeking. So then the question is, where do you get such a pure heart? Such a true heart? You know? A true heart of God in full assurance of faith. And the next verses tell us, having had our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed. And, and here, uh, excuse the, the grammar I'm going into again, here the, 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 the sprinkled and the washed are, are participles, they're helping verbs, but the interesting thing is they're in the perfect tense. In other words, they indicate, where the per- present tense indicates continuous action, the perfect tense indicates completed action. Completed action that has a present effect. That's that's the the perfect tense isn't used as often as the the aorist, which is the past tense or the present tense. And when it is used, it's very significant. So here he has two perfect participles, two pers- perfect helping verbs, where he says, not you are being sprinkled or you will be sprinkled, but you have already been sprinkled and it has an effect on your life now. You have already been washed, and it still has an effect on your life now. So let's just take the second one first. The body's washed. You know, it's not certain, exactly certain what that refers to, but I think most people would probably think it refers to baptism, water baptism, in some way or form or another. Um, Remember... The author of Hebrews is speaking to a Hebrew audience, a Jewish audience, not not a Gentile or Greek audience. So um, probably also they would have in mind um, Aaron and his sons. If you remember when Moses saw the pattern of the tabernacle, and I spoke about that a couple of weeks ago, and he had to build it exactly according to pattern, the pattern he saw on the mountain. And then he had to appoint priests. And Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's sons were the priest appointed. And and in preparation for that, he said, sprinkle them with blood and wash them in water. That's in in Exodus 29, verse 4. Wash them in water in preparation for their priestly service. So I think it it has a little something of that um, in it as well. God wants to wash us with pure water and sprinkle us in preparation for our priestly services. Because all of us are priests that's what it means that's why we enter into the presence of god that's why we draw near to god to minister in worship to him that's why we draw near to one another to minister to one another it's because we are priests <clears throat> and obviously this again implies community did you know you can't baptize yourself baptism by its very nature requires community. Requires you to be part of a church because someone else, another believer has to baptize you in the water. Okay, And then it goes on and it talks about the sprinkling, having sprinkled our, our hearts, having our hearts sprinkled, having had our hearts sprinkled. It's already done. So um, the first question is, with what is our heart sprinkled? And, and a few verses earlier it said um, that we have confidence to draw near by the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus by which our, our hearts are sprinkled. And they sprinkled from an evil conscience or a guilty conscience, depending on which translation uh, you use. In other words, when, and, and you, you, I want you to listen carefully because you really need to get this, when, unholy, sinful people draw near to a holy, sinless God, what happens to us psychologically? We feel guilty. Right? I mean, it's like, uh, and the closer you draw to God, the more you feel guilty because the more you see your sin. You know, it's like, you, you, you watch a, a herd of sheep and you think, oh, you know, so beautiful, so white. And then it snows and you look at the snow and the sheep and you see, no, the sheep aren't white. <laughs> they're dirty, they're dusty, you know, they're like off-white. Or you, you, you look in a room and you say, oh, the air is so clean, you know, like this room, you know, so clean. Well, open up all the blinders and shine a few lights in you and you'll see dust floating around all over the place. Now, it's the same when the closer we get to God, the contrast between us and God becomes so much more apparent. That the only legitimate response is guilt. the only legitimate response. I mean, the the closer we come to God and see His holiness, the, the, the more obvious our unholiness come, becomes. The closer we come to God and see His perfect sinlessness, the, the more obvious our sinfulness becomes. And, and, and the, the, the natural response to that is guilt. We feel bad about it. And And even a lot of Christians I know walk around with this constant sort of sense of low grade guilt in their lives. Because we know we're not good enough. Even the best of us aren't good enough. And we know that. And and here, the writer to the Hebrews is saying that something has already happened that has cleared our consciences. That has cleaned away that evil, guilty conscience. So that you don't have to or shouldn't feel guilty all the time. If you're feeling guilty all the time as a Christian, a true born-again Christian, something's wrong. Right? Anyone that has something wrong in their lives in that sense, that feels guilt that they realize now, maybe uh, I shouldn't really be feeling it like that. And maybe that guilt shouldn't really be Preventing me and, 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 and hindering me from entering God's presence as it should, as it does. I think we all sometimes struggle with that. Because we don't realize that we have already, it's completed, we have already been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And your, 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 your evil conscience has been washed away. No, no, no. we just say, no, yeah, but it's, it's washed away until you sin again. Listen, you sin all the time. If it's only washed away as long as you don't sin, you'll never have a clean conscience. You say, no, no, I don't sin. Really? <laughs> I think you've just sinned by saying that. It's called a lie. You, you want to tell me you never think an angry thought towards someone else? You want to tell me that you never think a lustful thought? You want to tell me that you never neglect to glorify God the way you should? That you always give him all the glory that is due his name all the time? Really? If we don't realize that the sin we committed in the last 24 hours is enough to condemn us to hell for eternity then we don't know how evil our hearts truly are even those of us who are saved we still sin Christians can sin anyone know that Christians cannot sin in peace but they can sin <laughs> and that's the thing that's the thing now I'm not I'm not advocating the other extreme of lawlessness, of, oh, you know, now and I'm, I'm going to talk about that and uh, bring the balance in a, in, a, in a little while. But what I want you to see is that I want you to see the radical nature of what Jesus has done here. It's so radical, it's a bit scary. Let me just read a, a parallel scripture in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 9 to 14. Um, and you can, you can either follow with me if you want to or you can just listen. It says, um, it's talking about um, that the holy places were not yet open with the first um, tabernacle, uh, which is symbolic of the present age. According to the arrangement, uh, gifts and sacrifices were offered in the right chapter, yes, offered um, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So in, in the tabernacle, gifts and sacrifices were offered repeatedly and they were offered repeatedly because, exactly because, they couldn't solve this problem of clearing your conscience. They couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshipper. And, and obviously, he has in mind here a contrast. In contrast to those repeated sacrifices in the tabernacle, which could not perfect the conscience of the worshipper, there is now one sacrifice made for all time, never repeated again which can perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only, that, that, uh, these, these uh, sacrifices, uh, repeated sacrifices, couldn't perfect the con- conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various uh, washings, regulation, re- regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice the redemption he secures, perfects your conscience, because it's an eternal redemption, once for all. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the five persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I, 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 want to, I want you to realize what, what, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here. He's saying that one of the biggest impediments to, 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 um, to serving the living God is the, the conscience that has been defiled with dead works so that we cannot serve the living God the way we want to. If you think about it, often the thing that keeps you and other people away from God and from serving God is because we often feel guilty. We feel our consciences aren't clear. I mean, who am I, you know, to draw near to God? I know myself. I know I've messed up. Again. A few times. I, I have no right to come into God's presence. I'm, I'm, I'm not holy enough. Oh, who am I to serve in God's church? You know, surely there are better qualified candidates, you know, who are more holy, who are less guilty than me. Surely, you know, I should just step back and let them serve. Can you see how a defiled conscience keeps you away from spending time with God and spending time serving God in in the church because you feel you're not good enough? And that's true for most of us. And and what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is Jesus has solved that problem. When you draw... Near to God. You do not draw near to God based on your acceptable track record. Because you don't have one. No one has one. You cannot. And yet, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he doesn't teach us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, oh Lord I'm such a worm, I've sinned so many times against you, forgive me Lord for I've sinned. Right? He doesn't teach us to pray like that. Well, how does he teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Worship. Your kingdom comes. Intercession. Your will be done. I'm consecrating myself to you. On earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm coming to God with my needs, with my, even with my shopping list. And then, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. In other words, there comes a place where you repent of your sins, but it's not at the beginning when you come to God. In other words, when you come into God's presence, God doesn't have this massive issue with your sin. If He had a massive issue with our sin, and when He came into His presence, no one of us would have been able to come into His presence. The only way you can come into God's presence is with sin. Because you're human. But you either come into God's presence with that sin covered with the blood of Jesus or with that sin uncovered. That's the difference. You know, let me put it in a different way. Um, in, in the previous few verses that we read in the beginning, he talks about the new covenant that I'll make with them. I'll, and then he says, um, I'll write my law on their hearts. And then he says, I'll, forgive, I'll, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Literally in the Greek it says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And it's as though we as Christians say to ourselves and to one another, you know, when you come to God, God forgets your sin. But you shouldn't. Right? Isn't that what we basically say? It's okay for God to have selective amnesia, you know, and forget about your sin. But it's not okay for you. I mean, why? If God forgets our sin, shouldn't we as well? I think we should. I think that's, that's part of the point of the book of Hebrews and what the Hebrews is saying. But now you're going to say, oh, but hang, on, hang, on, hang on, hang on. That is dangerous. That kind of grace that clears your conscience, that says, well, I can come into God's presence even though I have sin in my life, that is dangerous grace. And you know What? You're right. <laughs> You're right, it is. It's grace that is not only open to abuse, it, it almost seems to ev- invite abuse, doesn't it? I, I just want to... I, I really think, um, you know, since the Reformation, the church has lost a big part of its revelation of grace. And I think we need, we, we need to get a, like a, a new revelation of grace. Maybe we need a new reformation. I think it's been 500 years since the reformation you know if I look at church history I see a sort of a reformation every 500 years you know you had the early church and then in the 500s you had a massive revival and reformation in the middle ages around you know a thousand you had again with Francis of Assisi and those guys coming after that and then in the 1500s again with Luther and Calvin and the guys so I mean I think we do a reformation but I really think we need to rediscover grace And here's the thing, when I read the Bible, I find that Paul, for instance, his grace is so radical that it's constantly open to be misunderstood and abused. And in fact, there were a lot of people who did abuse it. And yet Paul didn't cease preaching his grace in that way. He says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be so. God forbid. How can they who are tied to sin live in it any longer? And that's the point of Hebrews as well. It doesn't only say God through the new covenant will not remember our sins anymore. In other words, they will not be brought up against us as a charge against us, as an indictment against us. In other words, it doesn't only say that God deals with a penalty of our sin. Radically. Finally. It also says... That God gives us a new heart by writing his law on our hearts and on our minds. In other words, he doesn't only deal with the penalty of our sin finally. He deals with the power of sin in our lives. And eventually he'll deal with the presence of sin. He'll save us from the penalty. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin. And he will save us from the very presence of sin when he takes us to heaven. If I can just use systematic theology terms, you've probably heard the word sanctification, right? It just means made holy. They talk about positional sanctification. I'm in Christ and I'm holy in Christ apart from what I've done. But then there's progressive sanctification where I'm constantly progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. Where the Holy Spirit is working in me and God's word is working in me to become more and more like Jesus. So that I no longer want to sin. Because he's written his law in my heart and I actually want to obey his law. And eventually, that sanctification will become, it will go from positional sanctification in Christ to progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus in practice, to becoming perfect sanctification. And when we see him in a twinkling of an eye, we'll be made like him. What a day that'll be. Here's the point. God has given you a grace that is so radical that you can abuse it. But that very same grace that, in a sense, invites abuse also prevents abuse by giving you a new heart that actually doesn't want to sin. <laughs> can, you, can you see that? Can you see how grace is so radical and so awesome, it solves even the problems it creates? Because, I mean, uh, we were talking about it, uh, I visited their small group of uh, uh, a week or two ago, curtain name, and we were actually talking about it. You guys remember? And, and and one guy was saying, "Yes, but you know, if grace is like that, then you can treat grace like a future data check. I'm going to repent now for the sins I'm going to commit tomorrow. The point is, if you want to do that, then you probably haven't received God's grace. Then repenting now won't help because you're probably not in Christ." Because if you were in Christ, you wouldn't want to sin. Because His law is written on your heart and on your mind, so that you love the law of the Lord. Those who love the Lord hate evil. How we feel about God and about evil is is inversely proportional. The more we love God, the more we hate evil. Because God has changed our hearts. So grace doesn't only give you a get-out-of-jail-free ticket it makes you not want to sin and go back to jail, if I can call it that. Again. Okay. Um, Let me skip forward. Okay. So in conclusion, God can only build through us if we continually draw near to him. In other words, if we don't draw near to God, then when we're building, it's not God building. It's us building. And the main thing that prevents us from drawing near to God is that evil conscience, that guilty conscience. But the point of this passage is that God has, radical, God has made available radical grace to deal with that. So if you are in Christ, no matter how you know, great your performance was as a child of God, you have as much right now to enter into God's presence as you'll ever have. Because your right to enter God's presence was never based on your performance. Never. It, it, it can't be. Can you see how much God loves us? Can you see how God makes provision for us? And I can also tell you, because God's law, if you're in Christ... And you're born again, because God's law is written on your heart and on your mind, you actually want to draw near to him. You actually want to draw near to his people and fellowship with his people. That's why you're here today. Because you want to be here. You want to be with God's people. You want to experience God's presence amongst his people. You want to say, "Let, let us draw near. Let us approach God's throne of grace. Boldly. And we approach it boldly not because we are so holy, but because it's a throne of grace. The boldness we have is based on who God is, not on who we are. It's based on His grace, not our performance. Make up your mind now, right now, that you will never, ever, ever allow sin again to keep you out of the presence of God. Because if you are in Christ, it cannot keep you out of the presence of God. It shouldn't. And if God, you have received God's grace and your sins are forgiven and covered and your conscience is perfected. When you do sin against God, you'll want to repent. So don't worry that you'll abuse his grace. If you've truly received his grace, I don't think you can abuse it. Because your heart has been changed. It's been transformed to hate sin and love God. Paul Washer explains it in this way. He says, "Imagine you are a pig, like you know, literally the an animal, a pig. You know, not metaphorically, like you're <laughs> you know, when someone's angry, are you pig. You know, not not that kind of pig. I mean, literally, a, a pig. And 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 there's this bowl of pig slop, you know, there on the ground, and and you just love it. It it's stinky, and you you smell it from a distance, you come running up, and you." bury your face in it and you start gobbling and And then your whole face is full of pig slop, you know, nice, smelly, disgusting pig slop and you're just just loving it because you're a pig and you love that kind of thing. It's your course. (laughs) And then while you're doing that, all of a sudden, miraculously, supernaturally, God transformed you from a pig into a human and now all of a sudden you're not a pig with his face buried in the slop, you're a human with your face buried in the slop. What will you do? How will you react? You'll recoil in disgust and, like, ah, you'll probably you know, throw up or something, you know. Because what was delicious to you, what was attractive to you a second before, all of a sudden became disgusting to you. Not because it changed, but because you changed. The radical grace of God that invites abuse also prevents abuse. Amen? Let's stand. Let's, um, I want you to just hand out the, the elements of the communion. We're just quickly going to have communion together. And communion is all about that. It's all about the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sin. It's all about the body of Jesus that was broken for us so that we can be made whole. Just by the way, guys, are you starting to realize that the the gospel really is good news? That it's kind of better news than we realized it was, right? That's kind of more spectacular. That's kind of more special. That's more encouraging. Are you starting to realize that? I'm starting to realize that. And when we take these elements of the communion, let us remember that it was at great cost to Himself that Jesus purchased this radical grace that not only deals with the penalty of our sin, but the very power of sin in our lives. It was at great cost to Himself that He purchased this grace for us. And let us be thankful. And let us make up our minds that we are not... Going to leave the grace of that Jesus paid so dearly for on the shelf by feeling bad and by allowing an evil or a guilty conscience to keep us out of God's presence. Let us make up our minds out of thankfulness. I, 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 I want us to say, Lord, out of thankfulness for the massive price you paid and for, for how much you suffered for me, out of thankfulness for that, I'm going to constantly continuously draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And every time, even when I know I've, I've sinned in my life, that I've not yet repented of, I'm going to, out of thankfulness, as a gesture of thankfulness, I'm going to draw near to God. And then when I come into God's presence, obviously, you know, when the time comes, I'm going to repent of that sin. I'm going to want to. But I'm first going to worship God. I'm first going to come in and just say, Our oh, Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. I worship you. Because you are a loving Father. You are a great God. You are the best. I am not, but you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for this bread which represents your body that was broken for us. That was bruised for us. That was pierced for us. Nails driven through it. We thank you, Jesus, that you suffered, that you were willing to suffer that much for us. we, we we, We know we're not worthy and we don't feel worthy, but Lord, we thankfully receive it and say, Lord, we are yours. Even as you gave yourself to us, we want to give ourselves to you. And as we eat this bread, we're saying, Lord Jesus, take me as I am. Let's eat together. I just want us to, to turn to each other two by two before we, we drink the cup. And I want us to, or you can do it in two twos or threes, just in small groups. But I, want you, I want us to pray and I want us to make that commitment and say, Lord Jesus, because of this blood and the grace that this blood has purchased, I'm never going to come into your presence again or even try to come into your presence again based on my own works or my own behavior. And therefore, I'm never going to come into your presence again feeling guilty. I'm going to always come into your presence by the blood. I just want you to turn to each other and just just each one pray, and the other one just agree, and then you can drink the cup together. Yes, Lord God, we just want to come before you and just thank you and worship before you are. And thank you, Lord, that we can boldly come into your presence. And they receive hope and encouragement can then take out it to the world to build your kingdom to build your church thank you that you use us even though we're imperfect Lord it's such a privilege for us and Lord we pray Lord that you'll help us to to really appreciate just the massive radical nature of the work that you did on the cross Jesus and we pray Lord that we'll constantly remind each other of it Lord we pray Lord that Lord a real sense of your grace of your father heart will be imparted to our children to our disciples to the people to the people around us Lord that we will be a community of grace characterized by grace grace that we've received from you and grace that we therefore extend to one another In Jesus' name. I can drink if you haven't already done so. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the constant communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of you. In Jesus' name.